Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. I'm joined by very good friends, Dr. Jacob Daniel and Mr. Lenny Esposito. And joining us for the first time on our show is our special guest, Monique Dusan. I will introduce them in a little while, but first I'd like to remind our listeners that our show exists because of your financial support and prayers. Apologetics.com is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization under the IRS designation of a 501c3, which means all your generous gifts to us are tax-deductible, and all of it goes directly to pay for our radio time. Since we have a, a lot to discuss tonight, we won't be taking calls. However, you're free to comment and ask questions on our Facebook page. Also, if you're tuning in, we are live, and if you'd like a friend to listen as well, let him or her know to go to 99.5 KKLA FM. And, um, and if, I, I don't know, do people still listen on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But let's hope so. Yeah. But if you're not driving and, or if you don't have a, a, a radio, you might want to uh, fire up your browser and point. Uh, your browser to kkla.com. You can listen there as well. And this show is being recorded and will be podcast on iTunes and on our site, www.apologetics.com. You know what, uh, Harry? Yep. I'm sure there is someone sitting in Germany or in Pakistan listening to our radio show. That's right. That's the hope and prayer. Uh, you know we're primetime in uh, China. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, okay, on to our topic. So unless you've been stranded on an island uh, these past few months, you know that we are in the midst of a pandemic. And if that wasn't bad enough, now we're trying to manage the fallout, such as job loss, quarantine, increased anxiety, and riots. And our nation is now the most divided it's ever been since before the Civil War. The rumblings of civil unrest culminated into an explosion of protest over the death of George Floyd at the hands of police. This has forced a national conversation over the topic of racism in general and what academics call critical race theory in particular. So that's what we're going to be discussing tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and I'm borrowing the title from Monique here, our special guest, when she and Krista Bontrager presented uh, at the Women in Apologetics annual conference this past January. So the title, and I'm stealing this, Monique, all right, The Great Awakening, all right, The Great Awakening, that's A-W-O-K-E-N-I-N-G. So it's a play on The Great Awakening. But uh, the, the subtext is CRT and its effect on the church. So I want to introduce our distinguished panel this evening. And uh, as always, I've got my really good friend, Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Harry. It's good to be here in the studio. I think that this is in, in crazy times that we are in. I find refuge That's right. coming here and okay. talking to our listeners. I love it. And uh, the best part, and I have to say, is when we're driving on the freeways yeah. and uh, we're kind of doing the show already in our minds and <laughs> in reality. I wish we could have re recorded that. Um, but anyways, I know uh, you founded Heritage Council. Yes. Um, 
tell us more about it and how uh, the activities of your organization really speak directly to what's going on in uh, our cultural moment that's happening right now. Yeah, uh, Harry, you know the vision of Heritage Council is to advance the truth of Christian faith and promote its excellence in public life. Um, and so everything that we do in terms of, uh, at the current moment, everything has transitioned into mostly online in terms of teaching and training. Our heart is to be available in times such as this, as the Lord has prepared us to help people understand what is good that God has invested here in the West that needs to be preserved and maintained. Not just for the sake of our blessing, but the blessing of others that we associate with. So in that, lately, we've been busy helping some uh, uh, Christian institutions understand the need for them to maintain their biblical worldview on which they were founded and what, what's good there to preserve and maintain. So that's the fight we are fighting right now. Yeah, I love your mission and vision, and uh, it's no secret, it's not even controversial to say that the West really um, got founded upon Christian principles. And uh, I know you believe that. I believe that. Uh, even a- I- I'm just remembering c- a couple atheist contemporary writers believe that. Tom Holland has a book out called Dominion that makes that case. Uh, Steven Pinker, another atheist, who also makes that case. Uh, it is surprising that I, because I've traveled quite a bit, lived in different parts of the world, uh, grew up in India. If you talk to people around the world, people outside America generally have this view that America is founded on Christian values. They have no doubt. Much of the confusion comes from American from within here. Yeah, which that is, is true. So I, more power to you. And uh, if anyone is interested, they go to what now? What site? Uh, they can go to Heritage Council, Council as in counseling, heritagecouncil.org. All right, very good. And then uh, Lenny, who is uh, joining us via the phone, uh, has been a constant faithful friend also to the ministry and personally. So Lenny Esposito, how are you doing? And tell us more about Come Reason Ministries. Oh, doing great. Uh, Glad to be with us again to discuss this important topic, something I've uh, started as a kind of a new research project. But uh, I've just wrapped up uh, 11 weeks in a row of live YouTube classes on, on what we call Christianity in the Hot Seat, some of the most difficult questions that Christians face today. And uh, it was interesting, when I planned the series, one of the key topics we were talking about was Christians and suicide, because we had several high-profile pastors within the last year or so who committed suicide, and uh, it was on everybody's mind. Of course, that feels like a million years ago now, given the, the recent events with, with George Floyd and the ongoing protests and things of that nature, and, and uh, I hadn't had the opportunity to jump into this aspect of it, this uh, topic that we're talking about tonight, so I'm excited to do it here. But, uh, but yeah, after 11 weeks of that, I'm, I, you know, going to take a short break. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, But it, all of those are recorded. They're, they were YouTube live conference, and now I can uh, have them on our YouTube channel and things like that. So. Okay. And uh, you want to tell people where to go, like uh, your website? So, the, yeah, comereason.org. Uh, we're, uh, matter of fact, next year will be 25 years online. 
started in 1996, one of the very first apologetics websites. Wow, wow. I love it. So, You're older yeah, than yeah. apologetics.com. I get it. Yeah, yeah well, as I tell people I started in the gray page days of <laughs> the Internet. Yeah. So, we All were right. excited when we got uh, GIFs. yeah (laughs) i love it and all right and our very special guest this evening is monique dusan founder and president of uh center for biblical unity and she's doing a lot of great work in the area of crt which is you know stands for critical race theory and just a lot of um uh, just helping christian leaders understand biblical, um, the, the, the response to our secular idea of racism, what the Bible says about that. And so it's a special privilege and honor, Monique, that you can join us. I, I know you're busy. I know we've been trying to get this, uh, get you booked for, for our show. And even though it's yeah. midnight, I, I, I know you're busy. You're probably traveling and everything. Not now, but uh, I'm sure um, you're getting quite busy. So uh, thanks for joining us, and um, t- tell us, this show is really about, uh, again, uh, Monique's story, because it's, it's very compelling and interesting, and I love hearing it, and um, so I'm going to let you speak, um, Monique. Tell us about yourself and how you got into CRT. Well, I am originally from Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, spent the first, I'd say, 16, 15, 16 years of my life in South L.A., and then moved to the Valley, close to by where you guys are right now, um, and then was there until, you know, I moved overseas for a few years. But in, in growing up in South Los Angeles, um, there was just certain rhetoric that you kind of just hear over and over again of, you know, white people and how white people do people of color, black people specifically, um, you know, things like the the riots that happened in like 92. I was there for that. I, I lived through that. It happened like down my street and you hear teachers in class saying things like, well, you know, white people just think that they can do black people any kind of way. Or, you know, it's a shame what happened to Reginald Denny, but, you know, black people are tired and fed up. Um, you know, and it's it's uh, a conversation that just is commonplace, you know. So it happens in the school, it happens, um, you know, at home, and you don't question it. This is just the way that you, you know, you talk and you live and, you know, what you think is true. And from there, uh, moved to, to the Valley, to North Hollywood, and eventually made my way to university, I went to, um, I don't know if I can say it on the air. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm not a censored type of a guy. Whatever. Feel free to speak. All right. Well, I, um, I did go to, to Biola, and um, there I, I studied sociology. I've always had a heart to, like, to help. I've had a heart for justice since I was a small child and knew that I was going to study sociology. Um but that's really where I learned a lot of the, the meat and bones of, of critical race theory. Just um, it gave explanation and statistics to what was commonplace on the streets or um, in the kitchen when the adults were talking and things like that. So I, I adopted a framework and 
it had been baptized in Jesus. Like, I, I didn't grow up in church. I started going to church when I was about 15, 16, when I moved to North Hollywood. But now it, it felt like my passion of justice and um, speaking out for marginalized people and the poor and all of that, it, it was baptized. This, this worldview was baptized in Jesus. So now it's like Jesus, the, my Christian teachers are affirming the idea that black people are marginalized, that we are oppressed, that we are oppressed at the hands of white people, um, that systemic injustice is a thing that I should be fighting against. Um, the glass ceiling is a thing that I should be fighting against. And so I, I just, I knew it was Jesus. Like I was like, well, this is surely the Lord. Like it can't be anything but the Lord because, you know, it affirms so much and speaks to so much of what my heart was already feeling. And now, you know, they're saying, yes, this is the way. And so, um, for gosh, maybe it had to be 20 years now, um, since leaving Biola, I held to much of that same framework and advocated for that, um, you know, told friends and other people about that, got them involved. And it wasn't until I moved home from South Africa that the Lord began to challenge my worldview, challenge my paradigm. What are you believing? Why are you believing this narrative? Um, you know, is there anything greater than your identity as a black woman? You know, your identity, are you first like a child of God or are you first a black woman? I would have said I'm, I'm a black Christian, you know, and that a lot of who I am and a lot of my faith is through that lens of my identity as a black woman. Things like needing to decolonize my faith, not wanting to have a white Christianity, um, seeing things that happen in churches being very white, just a lot of, um, I would say part, a lot of confusion, but um, just a worldview that really kept me apart from true unity with other believers, even though I feel like I have friends who are white and um, that never stopped me or anything like that. It was just this idea and knowledge, or, and I'll air quote that, is of knowledge um, that being black, there was only so far I could go you know, in society because white people were going to stop me because of these systems um, that continue to oppress people of color. So I'm not sure if that, that answers all the question of who I am or where I've come from. No, I love it, Monique. That's great. Um, you know, uh, Jacob and I were just uh, observing how the four of us here are pretty diverse and we're talking about race stuff and I don't know. I think that gives us a little bit of credibility here. How uh, uh, Jacob is Indian. I'm Filipino. Uh, Lenny, you're you're white, and Monique is black. Well, Italian, so I'm not. A, I, I'm not even a wasp. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I love this uh, unity right here. I think it's just organic, right? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love it. I love it. Um, so, anyways, uh, Monique, you. Um, I know you uh, in your testimony. You, you prayed, and, and 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 the spirit was steering uh, something in you, and you realized that you know there's more to um, race than what uh, secular humanism is telling us. And uh, n now you're like a champion for what you're calling biblical unity, right? Could you could you tell us a little bit about what that is uh, and, and why you founded? the Center for Biblical Unity. What's, how does that make you different from other, uh, let's say, organizations? 
Well, I think that um, biblical unity is approaching unity from a position of Scripture, approaching unity from a place of our identity, you know, that we are reconciled to God and that we are brothers and sisters as long as we, you know, have, you know, believe in Christ, we have faith in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters, that's what the Scripture says, and so we are unified, like the Lord has prayed, He prayed for us in John 17 that we would um, be one, and that He has given us what we need for us to be one. And so as brothers and sisters, we are in, a, in the same family, and I want to approach, and my heart is to approach unity from that position, from a place of our, our shared identity, and move forward as opposed to some of the things that we can see in a culture that feels more d- divisive, things like oppressed and oppressor. There, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but yeah. there's no real way to get to complete unity when we have that mindset of oppressed versus oppressor. Um, so I started the Center for Biblical Unity after having conversations with my friend Krista about, you know, what what is the possibilities? What could unity look like? Um, after a conversation with my intern, th- this is one of the deciding moments is I had an intern and she was at another Christian university here in Southern California. And she came to work crying, um, you know, telling us what was happening with the black students at her school. A teacher had been fired and all of these things. And what I recognized was happening was that there was the adoption of this critical race theory framework. So white students were being called oppressors. They were told that they were just being um, like white privileged or that they couldn't endure certain conversations and now were crying because they were fragile, you know, all of these things. And so in a conversation with the Lord, I just in my heart felt like or I don't want to say like audibly heard, but I knew the Center for Biblical Unity. And when when the words came to my heart, I was like, Lord, I have no idea what this is. You know, what is the Center for Biblical Unity? And so I sat on it for a couple of months. And again, I would just be stirred in my spirit, like the Center for Biblical Unity. And so um, at WIA, at the Women in Apologetics Conference, I had just put in the paperwork because I was like, well, you know, at, at very least, I can talk to pastors, go and train pastors on how to have biblical conversations about unity. We can, you know, write some blog posts. I, I'll write a blog or, you know, do something like that. And then on, gosh, one day in May, there was the George Floyd situation. So we had Ahmaud Arbery, we had Breonna Taylor, and then we had George Floyd in a very short period of time. When George Floyd happened, I had 39 followers on Facebook. And this is something that we joke about. It was like 39 followers. And like I had just checked it like a couple of days ago. And within a span of four to five weeks, I had close to 7,000. Wow. And so what I've really, and not just me, but my friend Krista as well, what we've um, embarked on is now a journey to reinforce identity, to really speak to the core that we are brothers and sisters. Now, sometimes brothers and sisters don't get along and they need to understand some things about each other, but we are brothers and sisters. Let's talk about how we can walk in unity with one another. Um, and let's not adopt a secular framework to, you know, tell us how we should be walking in culture, um, in, in the church or with one another. Let's not go to culture to give us our marching orders. 
So that's yeah. kind of why I started. I love it. I love it. Monique, it sounds like there'd been a shift in terms of your worldview as well. Um, would you say that CRT is a kind of worldview or it was for you? Yes, I think it was for me. I think um, it, CRT can answer some of the same questions as a worldview. I think academics really um, would say that it's not a worldview. And I understand that. Like um, a, a lot of academics will say that it's an analytical tool to be able to critique society to be able to look at, you know, who are the people who are um, suffering the most injustice and things like that. But by and large, I would say people who um, adopt this framework are adopting it as a worldview, even if they don't understand all of the tools and tenets of a worldview. All right, let's get into this now. Uh, let's define for our listeners what CRT is, and, and CRT is an acronym that stands for uh, Critical Race Theory. Um, so what is it, everybody? What, what, what is it, uh, Monique? What is critical race theory? Critical race theory, simply put, is, is a framework to be able to investigate who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors within a society. That's very simply put. It comes out of Marxism. So you look way back. Um, Marxism didn't succeed. And from the Marxist thinkers, though, you have um, different thinkers that, that were pulled out of Marxism or that came out of Marxism in the late 30s. And right now I am completely drawing a blank on these Hawkeye everybody's was, name. The, the, the <laughs> so School. Well, yes, but there, there were there were very specific thinkers that made up yeah. the Frankfurt School. And Hawk- so Hawkheimer was the yeah. Hawkheimer was the father. Yeah. Yes. Um. He- I think Hegel was there. Hegel. Hegel. Was there. Um, well, Karl Hegel, Marx too. Hegel preceded Marx. So, so in critical race theory is a subset of critical theory in general, and critical theory. It, if you remember, if you go back all the way in your philosophy to Hegel, Hegel had this idea that you have uh, some kind of a thesis, right? Some kind of an antithesis, and usually there's a clash, and then you get a synthesis out of it. Marx applied that economically. Hegel applied that mm-hmm. sociologically. So with Marx, you know, he would say you have the the Roman elite and the slave class, and then there's an uprising. And then you get the medieval period, where you have lords and serfs. Serfs are a little bit higher, lords are a little bit lower, but they're not quite there yet. And then there's an uprising, and then you would see then the working class and the owners, uh, and then there would be an And so Marx's idea was eventually there will be an uprising where everybody will own everything and it'll all be equal. So that's, that's just where you get this oppressor-oppressed dichotomy starting off. And then what happens is, uh, uh, interestingly, of course, two things happen. First of all, economically, the middle class show up. That kind of blows the whole ideology in up. But in the 30s, people didn't want to believe that. And, yeah. uh, and what Hockheimer and, and those folks did was they applied it to more cultural groups. So they looked at 
again, uh, oppressor and oppressed groups. And that's the way they see the world. That's, they see those as fundamentals. And that's one of the key aspects of critical theory in general, not merely in terms of race. There's oppressor and oppressed in terms of ability. So the disabled are the oppressed yeah. and the able-bodied are the oppressors. In terms of uh, sex, right, you have men who are traditionally the ones who hold the power. Women traditionally did not hold the power, therefore the women are the oppressed. And you can go through this with sexual orientation or any one of a number of ways that it's permeated. Critical race theory is one aspect of this larger body of critical theory. But that's how it developed, and uh, it's really kind of exploded in the last, I'd say, 30 to 40 years yeah. Uh, through our higher institutions of learning. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was uh, Antonio Gramsci like, who basically developed this theory and um, explored the cultural and ideological side of power, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And categorization in terms of power dynamics. Uh, so someone would even argue that um, uh, when we talk about Marxism, uh, what we are witnessing today may not be the true understanding of as Marxism was understood in terms of economic right factors. So there has to be some distinction maintained cultural there in terms of Marxism. cultural Marxism and yeah. the economic Marxism. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But Lenny, yes, you have come on through. Yes. Um, I would say definitely within the, the last 30 to 40 years, you see in the what late 70s, the rise of um, critical legal studies. And then, you yes. know, with um, with Derek Bell. Yeah. And then, you know, from there, I would say it's it just in the mid to late 80s with Kimberly Crenshaw and, um, you know, the, the rise of critical race theory and all of that. But it I mean, you're so right when you say like it, it looks at so many other things. So it looks at the able body versus the disabled. I was just reading something about like child studies and adultism, you know, so adults being oppressors yeah. and children being the oppressed. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, it, what right. does that mean for our society or for um, things like homeschooling? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Christians would be considered the oppressors mm. and any other religious group would be considered an oppressed um, or a minority religion. Yeah. All right. Well, so I, I hear the music already. And that means oh, wow. it's time for a break. And so you've been listening to Apologetics.com. We've been talking about critical race theory. Our special guest is Monique Dusan. So uh, stay tuned, and we will be right back in a few minutes. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. 
It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All right. Well, welcome back to uh, Apologetics.com. We are hitting the second half of the show. It's going really fast, and we've been in conversation with Monique Dusan, the founder and president of Center for Biblical Unity. Tonight we've been talking about critical race theory, and especially its effects on the Church, because that... uh, uh, unbeknownst to most, uh, to, to many, uh, it, it's since it's seeping through culture, it's bleeding into the pews now of our churches, and uh, Christian leaders are, uh, you know, at best confused and at worst advocating for these kinds of things, and uh, it's just not the gospel. But before we get into that, um, I want to hear uh, Monique uh, uh, just... To, to tell us what um, what are the implications, Monique? Tell us what are the implications of adopting CRT in general, and then in the church uh, particularly. I think one of the implications um, of adopting the critical race theory narrative is this: is that we'll never really we'll never arrive at unity. You know, that's a huge problem. And even though I believe that the people who really set out to um, 
to end things like racism, to end things um, like injustice or marginalization of people, depending on, you know, how they define those terms. One of the things that we see is that it's really just like a hamster wheel that you're you're going to have to keep running and keep going. There's going to be a continual work that needs to be done. Um, another, I, I would say, implication is that we're not taking into consideration the, the human heart hmm. um, in, within these secular systems. We don't um, account for people's personal choice a lot of times, and so that kind of that that just creates a setup where we're going to have to continue to work because there's always going to be somebody like if we're if we're aiming for this utopia there's always going to be somebody to mess it up you know, you know how you <laughs> my mom would say you the reason why we can't have nice things okay <laughs> so it's kind of like that it's kind of like there's always going to be that one person you know you the reason why we can't have nice things you know there there's always going to be this work and this like milling to try and get to this place where everything is equitable. And, you know, yeah. so I, I don't know that people who have good intentions in adopting this worldview have considered that all the way out. Um, and especially in light of, of the church. So then when we bring this into the church, we have things like um, my truth. So there's a removal of objective truth a lot of times because now I need to um, just accept the, the truth of the victim, accept the narrative of the marginalized person, of the black person, the person of color, whatever. But then what do you do when that marginalized person or that oppressed person is someone who holds to a different um, worldview than you do in regards to things like religion hmm. or sexual orientation? I now have to accept your truth. Because it's, it's about my truth as, as, as being the oppressed person. And if you don't accept my truth, then you are oppressing me. Yeah. And I think one of the dangers uh, that I think we were kind of touching, touching on was that we confuse um, uh, gospel uh, e equals doing justice, right? It becomes imperative in terms of like it is our duty to do. Definitely. I mean, our Christian faith calls us to do justice. I mean, but... Gospel is the good news, something that has been done. And I learned that with some, someone we should all listen to actually and read uh, is Neil Shenby. He makes that distinction. Yeah. Good news, you know, gospel is it's done. It's not that we add something to it, but because we are saved through Christ, we are called to do justice. And there is a yeah. distinction there. Yeah. Yes, yeah I I, I, oh, go ahead. I think uh, I think uh, it, it, this shows most clearly in probably what the one of the biggest bestsellers uh, that are out right now, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. And <laughs> first of all, it, it's a it's a terrible book, but right. realize that it's it you play into what they call a Kafka trap. There's no there's no grace in this system. You can never be excused for it. You can never be considered um, equal. It, it, and, and, and the key is the word that Monique used, equity. Equity is the, is the kind of the leverage point that they're trying. What equity means is basically everybody has the exact same thing at the end of the day. And we know that that's not gospel. We know that that's not true. Jesus said the poor will be with you always. So here's where he said, you know, this side of heaven, we will never get to a place 
in our society where everybody has the exact same economic outcome, everybody has the exact same opportunity. This was the lie of Marxism that from each his ability to each his need would be met. We found that that doesn't work. In any situation, in any culture it was tried, it failed because human beings don't act like that. Yeah. If somebody says, I'm going to get paid whether I go to work or not, I'm not going to work. And that's, and, but it's, it's a twisting of the gospel because, again, there's no grace. Uh, basically, if you are classed as an oppressor in any one of these categories, then there is no way you can redeem yourself, nor is there a way that you are considered forgiven for that. You just simply have to recognize it and take a subordinate role. Yeah, and our listeners, if they're interested to read more on this, particularly on this topic, I think I would recommend George Yancey, his book, Beyond Racial Gridlock. And he uses this term, mutual responsibility, mm. instead of mm -hmm. white fragility, right? Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Lenny, what you hit on just makes me think about identity. And the fact that with critical race theory, the idea of I, the, the, it's really broken. The idea of identity is extremely broken because we're always participating with one another from the oppressed and oppressor class. And there's no way to really bring us to a place right. of unity because we are only the class that we fall into, mm. which is so opposite of the gospel. It's so opposite of the work of Jesus, you know, that, yeah. that then calls us to be brothers and sisters. I think another another implication I would think is that the idea of breaking down systems, you know, now a, a lot of times terms, what I find are that terms aren't very clearly defined. And so you get right. this mass, we need to overturn all the systems and things like that. But that's where it can be so insidious and so sneaky and come in. And then now I need to overturn all the systems and the hierarchies and all that. But parents are, it, it's a hierarchy. Like God and, and Christians, like the Bible calls for hierarchy. It, it's displayed in scripture. You know what I mean? And, and so it's not that we need to overturn all these systems. Yes, we are called to do justice, but how are you defining that? And are you defining it according to Scripture? Because if, if, if you're overturning all of the hierarchies and things like parenting, adultism, you know, and now adults and parents are the oppressors, there's, there's a disconnect, but that's going to be the implication of, or, or the result of accepting this worldview into the church. Yeah. yeah. That, it creates a kind of like moral asymmetry, right? I mean, there are different kinds of morals that you work with. There's no objective standard that you would appeal to. You know, it's all about lived experiences. If that's yes. the case, how many lived experiences are you going to validate? And all of them. Yes. You're going to have to. You're going to have to. And you're going to have to basically validate everyone's lived experience minus the person who is considered the oppressor or the class that is considered the oppressive class. And so what you see in culture right now, and especially with this cancel culture, you see a canceling of white male patriarchy hmm. a lot of times. You know, so 
my truth, my experience, as long as I am the oppressed person. And again, I think that many people adopt this because they do want to see justice. They do want to, um, you know, validate the dignity, value, and worth of the individual. It's just the framework that they're using is extremely damaging. Right. Yeah, I think one thing that comes up quite frequently is the whole idea of equality and equity, right? Um, can, can you talk in terms of the distinction between the both uh, in terms of CRT, like equity and equality? How does that play into it? Well, I think one of the first things to, to think about is that where do we even see the word equality in Scripture? I think, um, I, I honestly think that it's only once where the Lord was saying, uh, maybe it's Paul, but somebody was, Paul, I think it was Paul, who was saying like equality with God. Jesus, is, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something that could even be grasped. So I think when we think about equality, we need to really think about the weight of what we're saying and what we're asking for. Now, yes, we all have equal dignity, value, and worth. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a fundamental starting place of being equal in, in the regard of, you know, our standing before God, that we are all created in His image. There are some things that we can say, you know, we, are, we have equality in this. Yeah. But I think with, with CRT, what the goal is, is that we would... Um, reach the same outcome? Equi- yes, have equity, have, have an equitable outcome, mm-hmm. that we would reach the same outcome. And in order to reach the same outcome, sometimes it, we don't need to start at an equal place. Sometimes I can start here and you can start there because you've had more advantages in life than me. And so we'll see things like um, grades, um, minority students being given easier grades or the easier ability to, to get into a school or something like that. Because what the goal is, is to have an equitable outcome where everybody makes it at the end. But that's not a biblical framework. Like, we don't see that idea in scripture. Like I, I think it was Lenny who said earlier, like the poor you will have with you always. Hmm. And you know, you can look in scripture and you can see righteous, rich people and righteous, poor people. Hmm. You can see evil and wicked, rich people and evil and wicked, poor people. That isn't necessarily the, the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is, you know, what is your heart standing before the Lord? How are you loving your neighbor in the place that you're at? Yeah. Well, hey. it has it has okay, specific go, go ahead, outcomes Lenny. even in in uh, the real world too. I mean, think about it. If if you have brain cancer, do you really want your neurosurgeon to be the guy who was you know? Well, we understand that you're come from a you know disadvantaged uh, family unit and this and that. So we just went ahead and gave you the degree. I mean, is, is that the guy you want operating on you? Is that the way you would want to make that, that choice? And the other half of this, and uh, John McWhorter pointed this out, was when you do that, there are many people who can succeed if you give them the chance. But when you make that as kind of a policy issue, then what happens is those people who actually worked really hard to succeed will never recognize because in the back of everyone else's mind it's like, oh well he got that because he was just part of this program that allowed you know him to advance. And and almost it almost dismisses your hard work instead of rewarding it. 
and and that's a that's a second problem. There is something that I uh, recently was talking to someone about. Uh, one of the ingenuity of racists is that they perpetrate their you know evil against individuals and somehow convince them to actually blame the system. <laughs> you know, so that's what we've created. Uh, we need to understand, as you said, uh, Monique, that it's an issue of heart as well. Individuals need to be taking responsibility and mm -hmm. the blame has to be with individuals as well, not just blaming a system or a structure that has to be deconstructed. Yeah. Lindy, I think another, um, something else to your point is that, yes, it takes away or um, can invalidate in, in a way like the hard work of another student. But what, what people were finding was that when minority students were given this um, access to Ivy League schools and things like that because they needed to meet a quota, they, the students weren't able to, to stay there because they, they were failing. They weren't doing as well. But when students were organically allowed to, part, to attend a school because they had the grades, they were able to, to make it all the way through to graduation. So then you have your B student who might go to a state school, but they, they do well right. and they graduate. And you have your other student who goes to Yale. You know, but it, it sorts itself out and everyone comes out, you know, of, of the other side instead of having this force system where now, you know, everyone is basically failing. No right. one's doing that well. And those who um, who can do well aren't given the credit or the accolades because now they're just a part of the bigger pool. Yeah, yeah. I remember going to uh, my freshman year. I was a physics major when I started off at uh, at UCR, and we were sitting in our calculus class, and I remember the kids behind us saying, oh, this won't be too hard because we used this textbook in, in high school. And my friends and I looked at each other like, well, we didn't have the opportunity to have calculus in high school. Um, it's a whole harder than the ones behind us, but it, it's that same kind of an idea. Yeah. yeah. Hey, guys, I want to move to um, this next question here. How do we know that uh, CRT has seeped into uh, organizations, particularly our churches? What are some of the telltale signs there? I think the word equity okay. is a big one. I think when you start seeing that, it, it's a big red flag. Which one, Lenny? Equity. Oh, equity. When people start yeah. talking about equity instead of equality, or or instead of opportunity. Yeah. I think that's a. I think that's a. That's a big red flag. Have you guys uh, had personal experiences in your own uh, churches where s some of this stuff is being adopted? I'm I'm kind of seeing a cascading effect now, given um, the the narrative that is being disseminated through media uh, and also social media in particular. Uh, so people are being, so one of the things that I think is we should be very careful about is the whole emotionalism that people are adopting mm -hmm. and rushing into making claims, rushing into making uh, their decisions, right? Um, because it is more approved by the culture. And I think that's a red flag. Uh, I think it's time for us to definitely take some action, but we have to put a lot of thought into it. Be careful as to how do we bring our ideas under the scripture, not the other way around. Right. Yes, yes, completely. 
Um, I would say one way to, to see if it is creeping into um, the church is some of the books that people are, are referring to. So a lot of churches are recommending that people read White Fragility. That's, that's a big one. Um, if your church is telling you that you should repent or divest yourself of your whiteness, that's um, something that, that's pretty common right now. Uh, I just read an a email from a woman who said that her pastor got up on, you know, in the pulpit and said, everyone should be supporting Black Lives Matter, the organization. That's something to, to yeah. you know, be careful about. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I feel like, you know, your pastor has completely gone woke or has completely adopted a CRT framework, but it does mean that there may need to be some more conversation happening. You know, I say give the benefit of the doubt. How do we have these conversations and, and say, hey, have you considered this? You know, what, what is it that you're trying to, to say? Because I, sometimes pastors just don't understand, you know, oh, this is really what's happening in culture, or they don't have the resources to, you know, the, this is what culture's putting out, and the church next door is saying, I, they put, you know, they promoted white fragility, so I think I should promote it too. The pastor gave it a good review. Instead of really getting in and digging into the pages of a book with the word open and saying, you know, okay, this doesn't align with scripture. We can't promote this from our pulpit. Um, In, in school, I think there's a lot of um, teachers unions right right now that are promoting white fragility as well um, that are promoting things like um, how to be an anti-racist by Kendi uh, and, you know, reminding teachers that people of color are the oppressed people. And so there are certain things that need to happen um, in order for um, students of color not to be oppressed. So, All right. Um, I know we have just about less than 10 minutes, and I want to tackle these two questions. One is... Um, uh, CRT is not all bad, right? I mean, what what, what are some of the uh, positive effects of this national discussion around CRT um, that, that maybe we should actually embrace? Um, I think one of the things that is a, a positive with CRT or something that we can, you know, as the church embrace is the idea of, like, the augmenting of history and the historical narrative. So how do we look at history. Um, is it just a history of um, the founding fathers and no mention of slavery or things like that, no mention of um, Jim Crow or um, just things that have happened in, regarding race and things like that to any minority group? You know, let's talk about the fuller narrative of American history, because I would say that basically every people group in America has, you know, had their fair share of issue and turbulence at some point. Let's let's have that discussion as opposed to just the, the flowery parts. Um, I know in in my school time, um, I didn't get a lot of a lot of that uh, a, a lot of that history. And so I would just say, you know, it would be awesome if people understood, you know, let's let's have a fuller narrative. I would also say that um, looking at statistics like CRT is highlighting a lot of the issues that are in society, but let's define our terms. Let's 
do our, our, our research too, and then say, hey, how do we, you know, approach these things? CRT is just putting forth different conversations. Now, the church doesn't need to take their instruction, you know, from culture, but we can have these conversations and do something to bring unity. Yeah, right. But I think, I- um, yeah, I don't know what you guys would say. There's just one or two more things that I would add to that is that the importance of our collective collective existence. You know, mm-hmm. we need to remember that as much as we have individual responsibility, we also we also live in communities, so there is a common responsibility that one has to take in light of any kind of injustice. Uh, that's something we need to think about. And also this aspect of lived experiences. Not all lived experiences are, you know, irrelevant. No, we all yeah. have certain experiences that need to be highlighted, but not at the expenses, expense of any objective evidence. Right, yeah. Christianity yeah. is based on objective evidence, objective truth that we hold on to, and conform our lived experiences in light of that. Yeah, I think I think Jacob, you you bring up a good point. One of the things that this highlights is that there's a problem. In other words, um, I think the diagnosis is wrong, but the symptoms show that the patient is still sick. And that's one of the things. It's obvious that our society is crying in pain. And so there's there's a problem here. I don't think, you know, any theory like critical race theory has to work consistently, internally as well as externally, and it it doesn't. But, But it at least highlights the fact that, hey, we need to address these issues and, uh, you know, try to move the needle in some direction uh, toward a corrective. That's good. I, I was going to say that uh, those are wise words, uh, everyone. Uh, one thing I appreciate about um, bringing CRT to, to light here is uh, that that seems to be one extreme, and then the other extreme is just uh, racism. So, again, in logic, there's always there could be a third way. You know, you're not uh, you're not commit committed to the horns of a dilemma. Maybe you exit that and say. Guys, there's a third way. So uh, m- maybe, uh, in short, Christianity is is something uh, that could be the solution, and we believe it is. Uh, the gospel is, and you know, Jacob and I were talking right on our way here that we tend to swing to the left or to the right, and um, there's truth there, and and it just takes homework and it takes discernment, and uh, we need to make clear distinctions about what uh, the good is in CRT and what's, what the bad is. And, uh, and again, overall, really, e- even, even in a secular mindset, it seems like the gospel is the only solution because uh, Jesus gives us a new identity, right? I mean, and, and our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I think uh, Christian faith offers, um, uh, I mean, because of Christianity, if we look at Reformation, it led to um, the, the idea of individualism, right? At the same time, Christianity also does not let us lose our individuality, you know? And I think the dangers with CRT is that while uh, we may want to hold on to individualism, but we lose our individuality being dissolved in this group identity that we are part of. Right. Um, Christianity, Christ offers us both. Yeah. And both are yeah. important, that we don't lose our uh, uh, ourselves 
at the same time, we don't lose our individuality. So. Right. In, in the world yeah. of philosophy, right, this has always been an issue. How do we have unity in diversity? So, so it's not just being vulnerable. It's about being valuable. And I think Christ offers that. Yeah, mm. that's right. That's a good word. All right. Well, um, any, any final thoughts? Uh, 30 seconds each, guys. Lenny, any final thoughts on this? Uh, this figure, before it goes away, we really need to, and, and as Monique says, it, it's insidious. And uh, the Cal State University system just passed a law that it is a requirement to take diversity classes in order to graduate in the entire Cal State system. You'll see that in the UC system. And they're pushing it for public school children as well. Wow. It's not going away. We need to know more about it and how to answer it well. Okay. Now, I, uh, Monique, you'll have the last word, but uh, I'm going to go to Jacob. Jacob, 15 seconds. Well, I would say if we got to bring all our hearts, desires, and everything, all of us, our vulnerability, our weaknesses, uh, everything to the cross. I mean, we find our answers in Christ, and He offers the good news that He has done good for us. He gives us the worth and dignity that we all desire. All right, great. Monique, 30 seconds. Um, I would say see Christ in in all things, see Christ. When we are pursuing unity, see Christ first. Um, define your terms well, because CRT will, will offer some of the same terms, and that's, this is how people get hooked justice, marginalized, poor, see Christ and know your definition, be bold. You know, Christ has CRT in him, and let's look at him. All right. All right. You've been listening to Apologetics.com, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith. And of course, I hope you've learned something of CRT as well, its effects uh, in the church. Special thanks to my panel, Jacob Lenny, and our special guest, Monique. Uh, visit her site. Um, and uh, to our intrepid uh, tech back there, Gabriel, thank you. And uh, again, uh, thank you to our listeners for listening. And until next time, good night.